0: And welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hi, Tamar. Mimi Lewis um, is still on parental leave, and we really miss her. But in the meantime, we are very excited to have Miriam Steinberg-Egith back joining us again right here in Philadelphia. Hi, Miriam. Welcome back. Hi. We are so excited to have you, and we are excited about this um, this episode. We are going to be talking about the Tennessee school board ban of mouse and other attempts to limit education around difficult or uncomfortable subjects like the Holocaust and slavery. And for our second segment, we are, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, we're getting ready for Pesach, and we're thinking about some Seder topics that we are and maybe aren't excited to discuss at our Seders this year. All right, so let's get going. So for our first segment, we're talking about book bans. Um, As you might know, uh, a school board in McMinn County in Tennessee recently decided to ban the book Mouse, which is a graphic novel by Art Spiegelman about um, his father's experience in the Holocaust. Um, And the reason that they said they wanted to ban it was because it contained some profanity and, and... image of a n- naked woman. It's kind of funny because a naked woman is a mouse. but um, And that led to a lot of conversations um, around banned books and topics that people don't want to um, have be in classrooms and books that people don't want to have in school libraries. A lot of those conversations I feel like have been really focused on issues around slavery and LGBTQ issues. But um, with mouse, then now it's also including a lot of Jewish issues. So Mm. I wanted to chat with you all about like, where, where we're, how we're feeling about this, where we feel like this is going. I guess to start, I feel like I should admit that I have not read mouse. Well, I have a copy sitting right next to me right now and I'm about, three quarters of the way through it, but I wasn't able to finish it before we recorded. And I certainly had not read it, started reading it um, before yesterday. But I, I feel like that's kind of beside the point with this conversation. Like it's less about mouse, obviously, and more about like content in particular and Holocaust content and other kinds of content that people find to be challenging. Um, and I'm wondering like, I know you're both parents, like how do you think about this both as like Jews and parents about like challenging content and how you want it presented to your children?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because different school board members in McMain County cited different things about mouse and some of them were saying, well, there are some bad words in there. Some of them were saying, ah, there's this partially nude female character in one page. Some of them were saying, well, do we really need to expose kids to things like hangings and murder? Um, And that's a big range of reasons you might want to not expose kids to a book. Um, And the first ones remind me of the time when I'm trying to remember who it was that wanted to censor Schindler's List because there were naked women in it in a way that could not have been less sexualized. It's uh, you got to be able to separate the stuff from the stuff sometimes, people. Um, but that was pretty roundly mocked. And this comes in a different political moment where it's, it's sort of a, a small follow on to a much larger conversation that really started with this fear over quote unquote critical race theory, which, um, the detractors of are really defining as things that are critical of racism. Um, and things that might make white people feel uncomfortable for being white, right? Some of these, some of the bills being advanced, there, there have been bills in the last year in over 20 states um, attempting to ban some form of content in classrooms. Uh, and often the language has to do with divisive concepts or things that might make people feel uncomfortable by virtue of their race. Um, the undercurrent there being, you don't wanna make white kids feel bad about being white. Um, re- Roughly speaking, I, I don't think that's doing violence to the nuance of the issue to describe it that way. I think that pretty much is the issue. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on. <laughs> um, and divisive concepts has given way more recently to a new wave of bills that would ban uh, discussion of, or in the words of some of the legislators, promotion of um gay themes or LGBT lifestyles or something in that general category. So this isn't like the Schindler's List censorship that was then, you know, thoroughly mocked by anybody who encountered it because of how absurd it was, because this comes in the context of a larger discussion where even the absurd feels extremely possible and scary. And there's just a lot going on. and. Some of these bills are not gonna pass. Some of them have been defeated, but a lot of them are gonna pass. And this is going to be this is going to be some version of law in a lot of states in the United States.
2: So, full disclosure, I also have not read Mouse. And Tamara and I were talking about this yesterday, about how we hadn't read it. Part of me feels like I read so many other Holocaust books that. I never felt the need to read this one, not because it's not a classic and important and groundbreaking in all kinds of ways, but it didn't come along in my life at a time where it felt like a thing that I needed. What I've been thinking a lot about is the fact that I read The Diary of Anne Frank in my public middle school, and it was a very difficult experience uh, for me as one of a very few number of Jewish kids in the school. And I don't know what it was like for the non-Jewish kids who were reading it, maybe being exposed to Holocaust themes for the first time. And as Zahava said, all of the various reasons for the school board wanting to ban Mouse makes it seem like, well, that's a lot of reasons you're giving, makes it seem less plausible that it's any one of those reasons, um, as happens when someone gives too many excuses. On the other hand, I thought, and I've been thinking about this quite a bit, I don't know that I want or trust Teachers in every school district in America to teach mouse in a way that would be appropriate, well received, well contextualized, and doing justice to the topic in the way that kids of that age from a variety of backgrounds might be best suited to receive it. So I'm in no way saying I support banning books, right? But I think if we're talking about teachers who may be ill equipped to handle a particular topic, I'm not sure what that means for those schools or those students who would be experiencing mouse from a from a teacher in a school that either might not have a large Jewish population or might not have people who are well-equipped to handle the nuances and sensitivities that are required to teach the Holocaust well. So I've been thinking about that a lot. And also, kids and adults and people of all ages deal and with and experience very difficult topics because that is part of life. And... You know, banning this from the classroom has all of that potential fallout for meaning that kids might not be exposed to learning about the Holocaust at all. And I don't have specific statistics in front of me, but the data about how millennials at some high percentage don't know anything about the Holocaust or, you know, there's a study pretty recently. Maybe someone can pull that up. Um, That's pretty scary. And obviously we want people to learn about this, but we want them to learn about it well. And I feel really conflicted, right? If there's a school that wouldn't be teaching it well, I'm not sure I would want them to teach it at all. Hmm. Which, of course, is then the question, where else would kids have the opportunity to learn about it? But I think it's more complicated than, should it be banned or not? Or what age should kids learn about the Holocaust or not? I think there's, like, a a few other layers there.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely more complicated than that. I feel, so, a couple of things kind of came up for me when I was starting to think about this. One is that, like, I went to a Jewish day school. I got a huge amount of Holocaust education. I think we've talked about this before. I think some of it was kind of inappropriate. I was in school in the 90s. And so like there were a lot of grandparents who were survivors, including my own grandfather, who would like come to school and tell their stories. And it's like some of those stories are not appropriate for little kids. And I don't think that the schools necessarily did a great job of waiting for a time when kids could really take that in. But I like, as I say that, I'm like, you know, these things actually happened to kids who were even younger than we were. And there's something to be said for like, it's never age appropriate to hear about genocide because there's no age when genocide is appropriate. It's never going to be the right time, which doesn't mean that you should like open with like, it was a genocide in kindergarten, but you don't maybe want to pull your punches as much as you might otherwise. I think it's complicated. And I do feel like, I mean, we've had Holocaust educators on the show before. Like these are things that there are a lot of smart people thinking about and thinking about how to do this well now. Like I said, I haven't finished mouse, but I, I mean, I'm not surprised it won a Pulitzer. It clearly Deserved it. Like, it's a unique approach to telling this story. I think that I am very accustomed to to hearing stories of children, I guess, because many of the people who, you know, were survivors when I was growing up were children during the Holocaust. They were not adults during the Holocaust. And one of the things that's interesting about Mouse is it's about. Um, Art Spiegelman's father, who was an adult. He like art, he was married. He had a kid. He had a business when the Holocaust started. And so he has a different kind of story than the kind of story that I was used to hearing. And that was very interesting. And it is also quite detailed about the kind of lead up to the camps in a way that also feels really helpful. I think, like obviously, a ton of attention goes to stories of con- the concentration camps themselves. but, the lead up is sometimes kind of condensed in a way that makes it seem like it happened super fast, which it actually didn't. And that that seems really important to me. So I guess what I'm saying is, I actually think having not completed mouse, but having read a, a lot of it now, that like, it does feel like it is appropriate for a like, eighth grade or high school class to read like it doesn't, it's very upsetting, but it's not, it doesn't feel to me like this is not the right take. And I hear what you're saying about teachers and maybe not trusting every teacher to do a good job with this. I mean, that's everything in school, right? Like any any subject, like a teacher might not do a great job with it or might not really be fully equipped or supported by the school district to do a good job. But I do think that's why it's more important to have like really great core texts that kids can look at. Because it's like, even if you have a bad teacher, if you read mouse, you've gotten a lot just from that. Like even if your teacher is not able to do a good job of like giving you more context and helping you to process it, it's there. It's in your brain now. You'll It itself is a really excellent work. I think that's one of many arguments why it should still be there in the curriculum. I think the like overall concept of challenging things, how do we approach teaching things that might make people feel bad about themselves? I have kind of a block around this. Like I, I just don't have a lot of patience for the way these conversations tend to go down because it's like, we actually only care about how some people are going to feel about these. Like these conversations are not happening about like the black kids who for many years had to read Huck Finn or Tom Sawyer, which are full of the N word and how like offensive that was. That's not, those are not the books (laughs) that people are freaking out about. Like those books are still in a lot of curriculums. And instead we're having conversations about like stamped and mouse and, um, books with LGBT ideas. And yeah. So that kind of annoys me because it's like, Oh, we're only interested in protecting these kind of like already privileged, usually white kids that annoys me. I do want to say, though, (laughs) I don't think this is being devil's advocate, but I think it is just being honest that, like, it is not incorrect that sometimes you read a book and you're, like, extremely impacted by it and that it, like, affects who you are for a long, big part of your life. I don't think that's bad, necessarily. I suppose it could be. And, like, if you think being gay is bad, then, like... I can understand thinking that like your kid reading a book where gay character is like comes into themselves and feels good about themselves. Like that is not something that you want your kid to do because you think that that thing itself is bad. I get it. It's just for me, I'm like, I think your kid was going to be gay anyways. <laughs> I don't think the book made your kid gay. I think the, ki- the book maybe opened your kid's eyes to the fact that this was a life that they might have.
2: So. So I I have a couple responses. I really appreciate everything you just said. Um, I think that the question about when do we expose our kids to difficult topics is really a new conversation in a lot of ways. I think both about the Holocaust specifically, when we were kids, it was so much the substance of Jewish conversation and Jewish families for so many people that... It was much less a question of when do we introduce this? And it was always in the air. Certainly that's the case for my experience. I could not tell you when I first heard about the Holocaust. It was always something that I feel like I knew about. And I don't think people had in mind to protect kids' sensibilities in the same way that we do now. So in a lot of ways, I feel like this is a new conversation that our generation of of parents and educators is grappling with for the first time. Uh, And the other thing is... When I was a kid, as I said, I read so many Holocaust books, in part because there was actually not other books about Jewish kids that I had access to. So if I wanted to read books as an adolescent that had Jewish characters, my options were Holocaust books. Um, And so I read a lot of those because I was looking for that kind of representation. And so that's where I turned. And that's one way that I was exposed to so many of these things. Would you like me to share a terrible anecdote about learning about the Holocaust in public school? (laughs) Um, As I said, I read the Diary of Anne Frank in middle school. um, And this is where I am. Listen, I should say I had a lot of wonderful teachers. um, And also this thing really happened to me, which is that while my class was reading Diary of Anne Frank, and it meant that all of the it was either sixth or seventh grade classes were reading Diary of Anne Frank. I was standing at my locker one day and I heard behind me, Jew, Jew. And I turned around and some kids said, how do you feel? And I was like, what? And they said, well, our teacher told us that we should ask you how it feels to be called a Jew because we're reading (laughs) Diary of Anne Frank. And so we want to know what it feels like for you to be called a Jew. And I'm actually very proud of the fact that as a, whatever I was, 11, 12 year old, I had the presence of mind to say, well, I am a Jew and I am Jewish, but I don't want you coming up behind me and yelling it at the back of my head in school Um, And then sort of ended the conversation there. But the point stands that clearly the teacher either said the wrong thing or the kids interpreted the wrong thing. And either way, it didn't really end well for me. Um, So when I think about people learning about the Holocaust in schools, that is the story that comes to mind for me of how is this really being handled and what are people really taking away from it? Because that wasn't the right assignment to, to give to those kids.
1: I mean, it's it's worth noting that the flip side of this is that there are, at least as of a couple of years ago when Pew published a map of this, there are at least 12 American states that require Holocaust education in public schools. So this is not like an unheard of thing. The teachers were just freelancing with Mouse and the Diary of Anne Frank. Sure. Um you know, it's interesting. But that also means that there's
0: 32 American states where there is no required Holocaust education, which is crazy because it's not like it was like an obscure event of 1742. Like, there are people alive who lived through it. And like, it was the biggest war in the history of the world. (laughs) Like, what a weird thing to have be not mandatory.
1: As an aside, just because you just did a thing that happened in my head for years and years, I thought that World War II and Holocaust were synonymous and that World War II, the sum total of it, was the Holocaust. And encountering like whole curricula about actual battles that had nothing to do with Jews just confused me for many years. <laughs> but so I, as a kid, actually was very sensitive to what I call disturbing books. Um, that's what that was the phrase that I used. And this is not stuff that came through school. This is stuff that came of being a kid that had a reading level such that I was often browsing in the library section geared at older people than I was at the time, which I'm sure was often true of both of you as well. And I would encounter things that were not necessarily pitched at my emotional maturity. And um, and it's interesting to think about what were the things that I found difficult or disturbing as a kid. Um, it it often had to do with kids in bad circumstances. I remember having a really difficult reaction to Maniac McGee, for instance, um, and another story at the time whose name I can't remember that was not as prominent in a book uh, that was about uh, a daughter with, ne- with uh, absent and neglectful parents who needed to be put in foster care. Um, what's interesting is when I encountered this in school curriculum, I, you know, we read the great Gilly Hopkins in fifth grade and that was handled intentionally by our teacher and I did not have trouble with it at all, um, because it was being taught to me in a way that was conscious of the fact that I was going to encounter something difficult the year after in school, I think we read a story about a a girl whose older sister was dying of cancer. And that was also framed very carefully. And when things are actually in curriculum and being taught, you often have better tools for dealing with them than if you just encounter them on your own. Um, But I think what's interesting about making this a Holocaust story is that in a way it feels like the reductio ad absurdum of the racism conversation. And so, Recently, a divisive concepts bill, put that in heavy scare quotes in your head, um, did not pass in Indiana, despite um, it was a Republican-sponsored bill and there was a heavy Republican majority in the legislature. Everyone expected it to pass. And a big part of the reason why it didn't pass was a teacher came to give public testimony and said, I read this bill and it would require me to be neutral on Nazism. The bill didn't say Nazism, right? But it said, you know, teachers must be neutral in teaching about all divisive moments in history or something of that nature. And he got up there and said, I cannot in good conscience be neutral about Nazis. And then this clip started circulating and Indiana voters were seeing it and people were calling the legislator and saying, what are you doing requiring my kid's teacher to be neutral about Nazis? And this effectively killed the bill. Now, advocacy from back, black families saying, what are you doing requiring my kid's teacher to be neutral about American's his- the American history of racism, did not have the same effect, right? So the, there's a way in which the when we're talking about divisive concepts and discrimination, that people, white people, see the Holocaust as the easy case, and that when you get to that absurd endpoint of banning all uncomfortable conversations, that in a way it is easier to explain why that's bad when you're talking about the Holocaust. And then the larger question becomes, why are we not similarly reacting to America's history of racism as equally obvious and something about which we can be equally non-neutral? Why is that not the same Sphere of conversation. And part of it, of course, is that we are still perpetrating a lot of those systemic racist ills in this country. And part of it, I think, is because it's about this country and people are much more uncomfortable talking about things on which their own country was on the wrong side of. So I'm coming at this from from two minds, right? Remember that I'm an education policy professional, and so I've been. This isn't an issue about which I do any specific work, but I've been hearing about this a lot at work. My organization, um, the organization I work for, has has published a, a number of articles, blog posts about um, what we call, you know, classroom censorship or um, the the bans on teaching truth, and. I feel very strongly about this in principle, and at the same time, I was a kid who had a lot of trouble with disturbing books. And I think that like part of this, there's a a hobby horse of mine that I really hate the way the word inappropriate gets used in most contexts, because people use it like it's the end of the sentence. Like, oh, but that book is inappropriate. Nothing is inappropriate or appropriate in a vacuum. Something can be inappropriate for something for someone, for an age, for a setting, for a context. Nothing is inappropriate in its entirety. That's never true. And I actually, I find this is really, you you hear this actually often from um, in orthodox settings when people are talking about what kind of media they expose their kids to. Oh, but that movie was inappropriate. I'm like, inappropriate for what? Inappropriate for who? Um, Things have to be inappropriate for. And I think that kids at any age can be exposed to challenging things about American history or about world history or about the society we live in now. And the question is, what is the age-appropriate version of that? And there are people in the world who are not me, who are in fact trained to think about this well. And I don't all due respect to people who are doing a low-paid public service job. I don't think the school board of McMinn County, Tennessee falls in the category of people who are trained to think about this Uh, for every grade level in their school. Um, So to me, me it really has to do with what the Holocaust conversation is telling us about the racism conversation in America and about what's going on at different ages, at different stages, in different facilitated conversations. I think that this is a, a real... State legislation to ban certain concepts is a real blunt hatchet of an instrument to take to it to what really needs to be nuanced classroom conversations.
0: I also, I mean, I don't have any desire to talk about Whoopi Goldberg, but I think that the the issue of like race and um, how it comes up in Holocaust education like actually is, A helpful way, I think, sometimes to get into a conversation about racism. That, like, the issue of race means very different things in different contexts. And that is, like, a helpful conversation to have, particularly with people who are, like, you know, beginning to developmentally be able to have more complex conversations and ideas about these things. And, and so I think to me that that's why the like mouse thing hit a little different than some of the critical race theory conversations, which I am very upset about uh, of their own accord. But I think that it's like, well, it's like, if the race conversation is limited to people who are afraid of their children being exposed to the idea that racism is bad, like, that is absurd. But like, I understand how um, white guilt, particularly in this country, leads people to have big feelings about that, and how they don't want their children to have those feelings. I don't agree with it, but I get it. But it's like, when you extend that to things where it's like, well, you're, you weren't like this, this actually doesn't have to do with you. This is like, another different kind of use of race then it's like it's clear how much extrapolating is happening and how much it really is about um the kind of blanket use of inappropriate that Zahaba was talking about and general feeling of like I don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable um really at all and it's like I mean I get that (laughs) like I'm a famously wanting to be cozy all the time person but it's like that's just not the world you know like would that it were so but it's not actually helpful to have that as like an educational tenet because that's just not what like history or learning is
2: it also seems to me that in the conversations and the articles that I've read about the Tennessee school board it has focused on the teachers now please correct me if I'm wrong but I don't recall seeing anything from students saying we read this in school and it made me uncomfortable, right? This seems to be coming from the adults saying we're uncomfortable with this. And so we're going to, by extension, say that it's inappropriate for middle school students, um, which is very different. uh, And so much of how sort of overwhelming patriarchal experiences get passed down of the people in charge saying, we think this is bad for these other people who we are in charge of protecting. Um, and it becomes this sort of paternalistic other feeling. Um that actually, you know, again, sort of hearkening back to my experience, if there was a clamoring of middle school students saying, we're uncomfortable with the way that this was taught to us and we want it to be revisited, that's a very, very different conversation. Uh, than the adults saying this isn't good for our kids kind of thing. But it's also, is not fair
0: to ask an eighth grader to know what they aren't being taught.
2: Of course. of course, And, and not, ask for that. I'm not that. saying yeah, yeah, no. gone that way either, but
0: no, I know. But I'm just saying like, I totally agree that like I, and in some places there are like kids and students who are, um, coming together like intentionally to read bad book, right. to banned books, not bad books. And, um, and to organize for some of the books that um, and concepts that school boards are debating. Yeah. But I also think, like, it's great that that's happening. But it's just, like, that's such an unfair expectation for, like, actual children who cannot, like, they can't know what they haven't been taught yet. Of course.
2: And if a group of middle school students were to come forward in some context and say, we're uncomfortable learning about slavery or the Holocaust or racism or, you know... I would hope that there would be adults in their lives to guide them and support them in right. confronting these difficult topics in age-appropriate ways. And I guess back to your sort of opening question about how do we feel as parents about introducing our kids to uncomfortable topics, right? I want it to be done in a way that's with guidance and support and context and reflection and and all of those kind of buzzwords about positive education uh, and child-centered education that gives kids the space to approach these topics kind of on their own terms, but with the real guiding support of adults who know what they're doing. And I want, you know, I want my kids to be able to engage, my kids and their peers, right? And their classmates to be able to engage with difficult topics, because I think that will will lead them into adults who are able to grapple with these things, hopefully better than our generation and the generations before us. Um, so I see kind of a hopeful, real potential, the kinds of conversations actually that my kids don't shy away from, that I think we were maybe taught in a different way uh, when we were kids, Um, things that you couldn't kind of say out loud, that um, I think that there's there has been in some contexts a lot of progress in that regard. And that does give me hope for how, you know, our children, twenty years from now, thirty years from now, might be educating the next generation after that, and so I think that there is still kind of that that long arc of justice uh, opportunity here. Um, and obviously, the individual cases, like the one that we're talking about today, are extremely demoralizing and really hard to hard to deal with. Uh, and I do still see a long game where things get better and there is more openness to talking about these difficult topics.
0: I also, I mean, one thing that strikes me when I think about all of this is like, you don't know what's going to upset any kid. I mean, like I, in my house, things that have like severely traumatized children in this house include a play where somebody was wearing a monocle, which was apparently (laughs) terrifying, (laughs) and a song about a creepy doll. Well, like... (laughs) Those were things that like nightmares, difficult conversations, for weeks, like terrifying things. I mean, I would not have known to go to the school board and be like, <laughs> no monocles or creepy dolls. <laughs> like there is a there is a piece of this that it's like there's going to be something that's going to upset your child, whether or not you teach them age appropriate history that is accurate. And so that just, to me, that is an argument for like, okay, like, we need to have a plan for that. We need to have a plan for the fact that kids are going to be scared and upset and challenged by things that they learn. And like, that needs to be the situation that we're planning for and not like, how can we avoid that under all circumstances? Because like, we can't. (laughs) I mean, it's been a pandemic for two years. Like we can't exactly keep that from our kids. And that's pretty freaking scary,
1: yeah. I just want to shout out an article um, from a few weeks ago that was printed in chalkbeat, um, which is uh, an education specific publication, and then also was reprinted in another form in partnership in The Washington Post. Um, which, uh, the Washington Post headline is, Iowa Scrap Teacher Training on Equity, Students of Color Felt the Sting of That Decision. Specifically, there was a, an Iowa State Department of Education teacher training planned uh, about equity, and three high school students were slated to give a presentation called, What We Need Our Teachers to Know About Race. And then as one of these bills started proceeding through the Iowa State Legislature, the training was canceled because they were afraid of running afoul of the new law by explicitly talking about racial equity.
0: Even though it wasn't passed
1: yet? Um, The bill became law in June. Uh, The event was postponed before that while they waited to see what would happen. Um, And these kids are now uh, a year out of high school because this happened last year. Um, But now that the bill became law this past summer, they're speaking out about this, the conversation they never got to have with their teachers, because in this case it was the students who were censored by this ban, and I think that notion is pretty powerful. And the fact that this might actually be preventing students from sharing their experiences, preventing students from sharing their uh, their feelings and encounters, is really important to consider. Also, um, my older child is three. And so I won't say that I've had lots of experience with this. I think in practice, I'm probably more of a wimp about these conversations than I would like, um, because they always take you by surprise in the moment. And I uh, I don't know how well I've navigated them. Uh, to give one very tiny example, um, my daughter overheard a reference to a baby's bris recently, asked me what happens at a bris. And I just thought the idea of intentional intentional cutting seemed very frightening. And I wound up talking about boys getting special Band-Aids and like, didn't feel like I canceled it that well. Um, so I wouldn't say that in practice as a parent, I um, expect to navigate this well necessarily or certainly not easily, but that's part of it. And that's not a bad thing you know, that this isn't supposed to be easy, um, that hard things are hard for a reason. Yeah. We'll see where this goes over the next legislative session. Um, But I was glad to see that Indiana bill go down in a discussion over principle and common sense, and hopefully we'll see more of that. Yeah.
0: All right, Zahava, do you want to take it away for our second segment?
1: Sure. So the next Jewish holiday on the calendar... Is Pesach, everybody. Passover is coming. Can you believe it? <laughs> um, and while all Jewish holidays pretty much celebrate eating, this is one that also celebrates talking, which makes it perhaps the Ur-Jewish holiday. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, in this segment, we're going to talk about talking at your Seder. We're going to talk about the things that we're looking forward to discussing, the things that we are not looking forward to discussing. Um in the talkiest of Jewish holiday meals, the Passover Seder. Um, so we're going to do some quick uh, questions. So this, think of this as kind of a Seder discussion lightning round um, where we have some questions for all of us to consider as we look forward to our Seders in a few weeks.
0: Great. Yay. Okay, do you want to kick it off, Zahava, or do you want me to kick it off?
1: Um, yeah, go ahead. You, you, you pick the first one to discuss.
0: Okay, so is there anything that you are especially – excited to talk about this year at your Seder? Any particular part of the Seder or any particular idea that you are pumped to bring up at your Seder?
2: So one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is what freedom actually means right now um, as we are coming out of this pandemic experience of isolation into hopefully less isolation and less pandemic.
1: Leah and Hara, please go outside, turn around three times and spit.
2: <laughs> yes, okay, fair enough. You got it. Um, nonetheless, whether it's ending or not, uh, restrictions are ending, so that part holds true. Um, again, kind of horrifying. Um, but one of the phrases that, that gets thrown around a lot at Seder is the freedom to do things and the freedom from other things. Um, and so I'm thinking about that a lot. The freedom to do things that feel more like normal life and the freedom from, I don't know, worrying about being sick all the time, masks, testing, restrictions. I don't know, whatever those things are. Um, I'm not usually one who's really into making modern connections with the Seder, which I guess we'll get to when we talk about the things we're not as excited about. Um, But in this moment, that kind of real experience of actual freedom feels very pressing and relevant and so I'm not sure I actually want to discuss that like at length at the Seder, but it's something that I'm really thinking about as kind of my own intention as I start to think about the themes of the holiday.
0: Mm. That is a good one. What about you, Zahava?
1: This is a little more prosaic, but I, as I already said, I have a three-year-old. So this is, um, and she's not yet in Jewish school. So she will not have been hearing about Passover for the previous several weeks in school. Um, And so one thing I'm looking forward to, but also anticipating with a certain degree of trepidation about the responsibility is uh, what Seder stuff am I going to expose her to, assuming that she's going to be pretty much asleep by the time the actual Seder arrives in the evening and that we'll be doing some kind of kid mini Seder beforehand. What am I going to extract for her as the vital, important things. Um, I haven't actually told her a story about Jews being slaves in Egypt, apropos of our first topic. And so I'm thinking a lot about what we are going to tell her about the meaning of the holiday and what symbol she's going to encounter. And this is going to be, I think, the purest instance of showing a child a symbol and having them go, what's that? What's that one about? (laughs) Um, So that's kind of cool. Um, But also I was saying earlier to my husband that maybe, all of this ritual, in addition to prompting children to ask, it also prompts parents to realize how much they're going to have to explain and do some thinking about how to do that. So that's something I've been thinking about.
2: Mm, great. A good one. That's exciting for you. That's like a great the three-year-old at the Seder for the first time. Whatever the mini Seder that you do is really a great moment in parenting, and I'm excited for you.
1: Well, if you have any great tips please send them my way. Oh my gosh.
2: I could do that. I could do a whole segment on that. Zava. Wow. (laughs) I would love to.
0: (laughs) Excellent. I mean, part of me is just like, I'm excited that I think we're going to have like a more normal Seder than we've had (laughs) in several years. And so just the fact that that is happening is like making me feel excited. Um, But in particular, the thing that I, I'm excited to talk about is um, I've been thinking a lot about, like, Ukrainian refugees and how, like, they are having this very specific experience of, like, suddenly having to get up and go somewhere without um, a ton of warning and without a feeling of safety and, um, you know, not everything um, about the situation seems parallel, certainly. But I do think of that as a very... Relevant story to the Seder. And just like I think we tend to think about the slavery aspect and going from slavery to freedom more than the like quickly getting up and having to leave a place that you've been living a lot a long time aspect. Which I think like the slavery to freedom is a much bigger idea. And so I'm not like saying we shouldn't be talking about it as much, but um I have often thought about how as a type A planner person, like the idea of having a very small amount of time to like dramatically change everything about my life, like would cause me to have a total meltdown (laughs) Um, and would just be like extraordinarily difficult for me. And so just like the reality that that is still just, I mean, that could happen at any time, right? Like, Like natural disasters and fires and, You know, it could be that something could cause you to have to leave your house all of a sudden, and it it has happened to people um, that we know in our own communities. But just like knowing that it's happening to like an entire country of people right now, and that it is really similar to the uncertainty that we know that the Israelites felt, where they were like, "Where are we going? Are we actually going to be safe there? Like, who's going to be in charge? This is all so unknown and scary." That that is something that is real to so many people right now Um, and obviously it's been real for millions of refugees before it happened to the Ukrainians but um, I don't know I've been thinking about a lot how that is something that feels important to talk about and think about this year.
1: Okay lightning round question two. So there is a Seder tradition um, that When we recite the 10 plagues as part of the seder, we take our cup of wine and drip out or spill out a small amount of the wine each time uh, to show that our cup of happiness isn't full in the face of human suffering, even if it's the suffering of our oppressors or enemies in this particular instance. Um, And I thought it was a really interesting question to ask how we actually Operationalize that in their in our own lives. Do we have any? Um, do we make any space for that kind of ambivalence? How do we uh, reconcile rejoicing in victory or success um, versus uh, rejoicing too much when you see the suffering of someone on the other side? Is there a way that that shows up in your life now, when maybe the idea of enemies versus you is not the world's most simple and binary and constant idea? So I'm curious if there's anything about that that resonates in your daily life now. I
0: have, I, when I was thinking about this question, I kept thinking about um, vaccine deniers and COVID deniers. And my best friend is an ICU doctor in New York. And, you know, the vast majority of people who come into the ICU with COVID at this point are people who chose not to be vaccinated. And he has to take care of people who, are very sick and didn't have to be very sick. And that is like not a thing that he had to experience much at all before the pandemic. And so um, I just think a lot about like the compassion fatigue that I think, uh, particularly a lot of healthcare providers, but also like, I mean, I think a lot of people in general. Is, like, I am also having trouble feeling bad for people who get very sick right now when they have not taken like the most basic precautions um, to protect themselves in their communities. Um, and that just does make me think about like, you know, on the one hand, I think we do, there is this feeling of like, we should feel bad about people dying, but should we feel bad about people dying when they were oppressors? <laughs> and like, how do we, how do we square that is ultimately, what I think what you what the question is here. And I, I think that it's like, I think this has opened up a new facet of that to me. And there is a piece of it where I just like, I mean, I have the luxury of like not having to like treat these people in an ICU, but I, I do just feel like, well, too bad. Like I I just, it's not, I I am not feeling a ton of compassion for them ultimately. Um, I think that like on an institutional level, I can think about how like a lot of people who feel this way have, like good reason to distrust medical authorities because they have been treated poorly by doctors um, or healthcare providers in the past, or like their communities have historically been marginalized by like public health communities. And, you know, that is all real. And I do understand that. But I also feel like, I don't know, I'm at a point where it's like, well, the Egyptians were pursuing us to either kill us or enslave us. So when they died, I'm not gonna cry about it. And that's kind of where I am about COVID vaccine deniers as well.
2: The the key word that comes to mind with this question is compartmentalization, right? Like if we allowed ourselves to reflect and to live in the horror of what is really out there in this world, we would never be able to do anything else. I really believe that. Like, The world is so bad in so many ways that if we really gave that the attention that it deserves, that would be it for all of us, for all of humanity would be focusing on the suffering. And that's not what Judaism wants us to do. I don't think that's how anyone actually wants to function. Um, People who do that don't do well themselves. Um, We have to be able to compartmentalize, right? When I think about, dipping those drops out at the Seder, when I really think about those plagues, like that is horrible. And it is compartmentalized to the plague dripping part of the Seder. Um, It is not that the whole Seder focuses on other people suffering, because then it would not be a redemptive, joyful experience, ultimately. It would just be about horrors. Um, And that really is how I feel about most of life. to, to give another pandemic example, um, you know, when we think about, like, my kids didn't go to school for a year and a half. That's crazy time. Like, that's a crazy thing to think about. And if we think about, like, how much they lost and how much, and I don't mean just my kids specifically, like, children in this country lost from those kinds of experiences, um, You know, we could really dwell in that and like really get stuck in that. And I try and I try with my family to say, remember this really nice thing that happened in 2020 or 2021. Uh, We were able to do this thing that never would have happened if we hadn't been home together in those circumstances for all of this time. We had experiences and got to know each other in different ways. Um, I hate hate the term silver linings, uh, but I think when we're able to see some good that happens amidst some bad, then we're able to function as human beings who can, you know, do other do other things in the world and hopefully do good in the world. Um, and it doesn't mean, again, like we talked about with mouse, it doesn't mean people shouldn't read books that disturb them or shouldn't learn about parts of history that are difficult. Obviously we have to, and we need to, and Acknowledging suffering and experiencing suffering, unfortunately, is part of life. But we also have to be able to put it to the side and, you know, experience that joy. Uh, And it's really, really, really hard. And I think it's hard every day. Um, And I also think it's actually like a great practice of both the Jewish calendar and the Seder itself. Um, I know... With Purim just having passed, uh, there is a forced levity that happens on Purim that I know some people struggle with. And also, I think that there are elements in the way Judaism focuses our emotions that gives us good practice in compartmentalization. And I think that the plagues part of the Seder is a great
1: example of that. That's a really great answer. It's, it's funny. I think I was a little less personal about this and focusing more on the question about like enemies um, and how to relate to bad actors in the world. Um, and the thing that actually came to mind in the way that this value shows up in my values or our national values or things like that is, is the idea of a robust... Um, system for protecting defendants' rights, which we often lack in the United States, but in theory uh, is something that we believe in. And thinking especially about the – there's been a recent conversation about what lines of attack Republicans might be able to use against Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who's the current nominee um, to the Supreme Court, and two lines of potential criticism that I've heard are uh, the people she defended as a federal public defender – And uh, at times when she advocated for reducing the federal sentencing guidelines as a member of the Federal Sentencing Commission for whatever crime the question was about. And the idea that inherently somebody could be criticized for advocating mercy or standing up for somebody who did something bad is really troubling. And I think that this is is, um, a moment where we see that Jewish value as well, as much as like just... You know, people make jokes about how the Old Testament version of God is, is so punitive, but actually there's really strong, powerful threads of Jewish tradition that are about acknowledging the wholeness of a person's humanity and about the value of mercy embedded within justice and things like that. And um, so I was just thinking of that in the context of current events, but I thought it was an interesting lens, the Pesach lens on it, I thought was interesting. That is really interesting.
2: Thanks
0: for sharing. Yeah. All right. I think we have
1: one last
0: question. Go for it, Zava.
1: Oh, so what is your dream Seder guest? What living person would you want to have at your Seder the very most? I feel like tomorrow probably has. Limited to people who are alive. Yes. My husband was like, Moses? I'm like, no, it doesn't count.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know. I also was like. It's a very different question if we don't limit it to people who are alive. So that's why I want well,
1: to Well, Tamar, that. you're somebody who actually does invite like your local elected officials to your Seder sometimes. You do expand the circle a little bit more than people often do. So I bet you have a good answer to this.
0: Oh, my gosh. I had so much fun thinking about this. So related to your, your um, last answer, actually, I was thinking that it would be really cool to have somebody who's been incarcerated and has been released um to be at a Seder because I feel like that um transition from um slavery to freedom would really speak to them in a specific way and might really lead to some really awesome conversations um I don't know anyone who fits that bill right at this moment so I couldn't technically do this um uh I also related to what I was saying earlier I I thought it would be cool to have um, a Ukrainian refugee again that's like not realistic but I think it would be um, lead to a really interesting conversation. Um, but some specific people who I was thinking about, um, I read a book, I don't think I recommended it on the podcast, but called Breeding Sweetgrass last year, um, which is by um, an indigenous biologist named Robin Wall Kimmerer. And she talks a lot about how like a lot of what um, biologists are learning right now is stuff that indigenous cultures have been doing for a really long time. And um, it's a, fascinating book. And I just thought it would be really interesting to have a conversation with somebody who is very invested in indigenous rights and history. The Sator is really a conversation about returning to your homeland and what it might be like to have a conversation with someone about like your homeland has not gone, but you have had it. Like you are still in your homeland in a way, but it's also kind of been taken away from you. I don't know. I think that that could be a really interesting set of conversations. Um, similarly, I thought, um, W. Kamau Bell, I don't know if either of you have watched his show on CNN, um, United Shades of America. It's so good. He just seems like a, somebody who has really smart, interesting things to say about almost everything. He just did a really excellent series called we need to talk about Cosby. Um, I, I, Kind of think I would like enjoy talking to him about anything, but this seems like it would be a particularly fruitful conversation. Um, And the other person I was thinking about was Nicole Hannah-Jones, who wrote the 1619 Project and is just an incredible journalist who I know is very connected to Zahava's work. I think she would be a great guest. So
2: that's my dream list. What about you, Miriam? So a modern-day refugee was also on my list, both to provide hospitality to someone in a really true to the words of the Seder kind of way. uh, And also to make the story contextualized in what modern experiences of Exodus can look like. But I don't know a specific person to say there. Another one that came to mind, also an author, um, is Anne Patchett. Uh, She is Catholic. She is not Jewish. But I have been reading... Some of her work lately and have been really, really inspired by her take on the world and think that I would like to have any conversation with her. So if there's the opportunity, that would be great. Um, As Miriam
0: knows, I did once have a meal with Ann Caget and true. it was amazing. It was so,
2: <laughs> Which makes I, it seem less like a dream guest, except it was your dream, not mine. So, you know, <laughs> that's how that happened. Um, and then this one is, this is a bit of a pop culture. I was thinking about Padma Lakshmi. Uh, one of the hosts of Top Chef. I think she's amazing. She has done some really interesting work on sort of global food culture, not only, you know, her work as the host of this TV show. Um, I really like Top Chef a lot, and I always, always, every season, think that they should do a challenge that is about creating a kosher meal. And to my knowledge, it has never happened, Um, but what better way to uh, put that idea in her head than at a Seder meal? Um, So, you know, that's a a far-reaching one. But also, I think, in general, sharing Seder meals with people who are from other cultures, with both, you know, rich food cultures, but also just, like, other life experiences and other experiences of immigration and assimilation and otherness and all of those themes that we talk about in Jewish communities all the time. um, Bringing people from other communities into that conversation is something that I find a lot of meaning in around Pesach conversations. And again, I think she's really awesome and it would probably be really fun.
0: That sounds so fun. I would (laughs) love to be at that Seder.
2: (laughs) Wait, I have to say one more thing, which is that we have basically had two years of Seder with almost no guests. Um, so in some ways, a dream Seder guest is like anyone outside of my <laughs> pandemic pod, uh, not because I don't love those people, but because I usually have really big saters with lots and lots of people. And so a dream Seder guest feels like anyone who can safely come into my home would kind of be a dream this year as well.
1: Yeah. This is a hard question for me because, and I've spoken about this on the podcast way back before, but I... I The saders that I grew up in, and in general, the saders that my family does, are are really not accessible to (laughs) the wider world. Like it's like everybody say all the original Hebrew out loud in unison. Like this is not a very guest friendly (laughs) model of having a satyr. Yeah, I don't know how much Padva Lakshmi would really appreciate that. I am also on record on this podcast as saying that the Seder is the Jewish holiday meal that is least about the meal, which apparently is not a widely held uh, opinion, (laughs) but I'm like, there's so much else going on at the Seder. Unlike Shavuot, all you're doing at lunch is having lunch, but on Pesach, on Seder night, you've got a whole program and the meal is way down the list. So (laughs) generally speaking in my family, um, the meal has not been the main event. And so it's hard to think about visiting that on someone else. (laughs) <laughs> so my first thought was actually, who could I invite? That's very inside the circle that I just think would be a great contributor to a more traditional Seder discussion. And the person who came to mind, and this is a little bit of a weird thing to say, because technically we are cousins, though that is true of a lot of people in the world and me, uh, is Rabbanit Chana um, who is the you know the co-founder and Rosh Midrasha at Nishmat um, in Jerusalem, which is an advanced Torah study academy for women. And sh- she's co-founder of the program to certify women uh, to answer questions in NIDA and family purity law, which has been a really important sea change in a lot of Orthodox communities. And I just think she's a really interesting person. I've heard her speak a number of times, and she's just a really great Torah thinker. And I just think she'd be a great person literally to have it my actual seder, which uh, theoretically I could invite her, but I think she probably has other plans despite actually being related to me. Um but, um, if I were to imagine a different seder that I could host at which I could have uh, a broader range of people, actually, the person that came to mind was Marianne Wright Edelman, um who's the founder of the Children's Defense Fund. Oh, nice. um, she is the coolest, um so she was the first black woman woman admitted to the bar in Mississippi. She was. Uh, very involved in early days of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund advocacy and uh, early organizing at the Poor People's Campaign, and then really an innovator in the idea that children have rights and that their well-being and experience should be um, the the first thing that we think about when we talk about um Laws as they affect uh, youth in care, as they as they affect children in poverty, as they affect children of color, and that the children. She's now president emerita. She she served as president of the organization that she founded for uh, oh, close to thirty years, um, and is now president of Merida. But she is super fascinating. Um, her marriage to her husband, who I believe is Jewish, was only the third uh, interracial marriage in Virginia after the Loving v. Virginia decision. She's just such a a pioneer in rights and liberty in so many ways. Um, and frankly, a lot of the leading voices of the American civil rights movement have passed away in the last few years. And just thinking about who in the category of living people that I would want to have at my Seder, um, she was a figure in that conversation that brings a few different things and I thought would be amazing. Also, as an aside, I recently read the Curtis Sittenfeld novel, Rodham, which is her fictionalized sort of alternative history of what would have happened in the life of Hillary Rodham Clinton and in American politics if Hillary had never married Bill. Um, And Marion Wright Edelman happened to be an early employer and mentor of Hillary Rodham. And there's a fictionalized version of her in the book. There are a lot of public figures who are named and fictionalized in the book. This one um, has a different name in the book. Um, But It was just interesting and and seeing her through that lens was also kind of fun. I do recommend the book. But anyway, I think that she'd be a fabulous person to have at a Seder.
0: That was such a good answer. I also love that book. And now I want to like read a whole book about Marianne Edelman. Okay. Well, this was so fun. I hope our Seders are as fun as this conversation was. Um, That would be really nice. Um, I think we have now reached the time uh, where we talk about endorsements. And before we go into our um, individual endorsements, we do have a group endorsement, um, which is the editor of our podcast for the past few years, Daniel Zana, um, has moved on to new projects. But he has a new podcast um, that just started this month. It's called Jews on Film. And so we want to shout it out. It's really great. And we hope that all of you will check it out. Um, I also wanted to do just like a mini shout out to my friends Jeremy and Shoshana Bannett um, and to Jeremy's dad, Greg, who I know is a big fan of the podcast. Jeremy and Shoshana did a last minute mitzvah of lending me mouse yesterday (laughs) um, so that I could try and read it before the podcast, which I really appreciate. Now onto our individual endorsements. Miriam, help us out. What do you endorse this month?
2: Great. So since I already mentioned Ann Patchett, I will circle back to endorse Anne Patchett's recent essay, These Precious Days, uh, which is published online in Harper's, so you can read it there. It's also part of a collection of essays called These Precious Days. All of the essays in the book are really excellent, but the one that is called These Precious Days is amazing, life-changing. I loved this essay so much, and I want everyone to read it. So that's my first endorsement. Um, My second endorsement is... The 100th anniversary of Judith Kaplan's bat mitzvah, uh, which has been making the rounds on social media as women post pictures of themselves having bat mitzvah, uh, at least on my Facebook feed that generally means 80s and 90s bat mitzvahs. And I've been really inspired and moved by seeing all of these pictures of women Sort of reflecting on their 12, 13 year old selves and what the 100th anniversary of this ritual means to them. Um, and the co-endorsement to that is the new Pixar movie Turning Red, which going from the ritual of bat mitzvah to this movie, which is about girls' adolescence. Uh, they are closely linked in many thematic ways. Um, so I recommend the social media experience of seeing these bat mitzvah pictures and also this movie.
0: Hmm, Awesome. I have not watched the movie yet, so I am excited. And also the essay, which Miriam has now recommended to me three separate times. (laughs) So it is very high on the list. Um, Okay, Zahava, what do you have to endorse?
1: Okay, so actually, first I'm going to revive an old Tamar endorsement. I'm 95% sure, Tamar, that this is a book that I read because you recommended it on the podcast a few years ago, which is the book Go Went Gone by Jenny Erpenbeck. Mm -hmm. Um, Just in light of our earlier conversation about the refugee experience and thinking about that on Pesach. um, So this is a book that it was translated from the German and it's a story about a retired university professor, academic um, in Germany, uh, living in Berlin, uh, formerly on the eastern side of the Berlin Wall. So he had his own experience uh, with the end of the Cold War and his encounter with African asylum seekers in Berlin who are not allowed to work in Europe and what their social experience is like, what their history personally is like, how they're navigating being in Europe or being prevented from navigating being in Europe and um, what his encounter with them is like. And I found it an incredibly powerful reading experience after Tamar recommended it. And if you are thinking through refugee experiences in a new way, given current events, I will definitely send you back here. So Go Went Gone by Jenny Erpenbeck. Um, Another sort of more, uh, you know, daily useful kind of uh, uh, casual endorsement. And I'm hesitating because I haven't actually used this very much yet, but I was recently recommended on YouTube a channel called Rainbow Plant Life, which is a vegan cook, home cook, who does, you know, recipe shares. She also has a an email newsletter and she also has an Instagram account. So whatever your way is of finding and getting fun recipes online. There's a version of this for you. And, um, she's got a really varied and interesting and delicious looking repertoire of vegan recipes, which could be very useful as you're, for instance, trying to be creative about thinking about accommodating dietary needs of your Passover guests, or maybe just thinking about how to go a little, um, less meaty in your weekly routine, or maybe you yourself are already vegetarian, or maybe you're trying to accommodate a range of kashrut, uh requirements or whatever it is, rainbow plant life. It seems like there's a lot of great stuff in there and I'm just starting to explore. So I recommend that other people explore along with me. We'll share links in the show notes to the various ways you can access it.
0: Awesome. I'm totally going to check that out. Uh, Instagram has been serving me so many vegan recipes lately and I'm like, I love cheese. I don't understand why Instagram doesn't understand that about me. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, these recipes do look good.
1: Well, as an aside, I've been eating less cheese recently because my stomach has been less happy about cheese. And the other weekend, I was with some people for a birthday. I was offered a cupcake and I said, Are these dairy? And they said, No, they're parv. Why? are you still flasheic? Like, have you had meat that recently? And I said, no, I'm not flasheic. I'm just lactose intolerant, which seems like something you could put on a sweatshirt and market very heavily (laughs) to a very narrow segment of people. Oh my gosh.
2: I want one. That's amazing.
0: This is your million dollar idea. (laughs) Or at least thousand dollar idea. Okay. I have a couple of Endorsements I'm super excited about. So um, I tried and failed this month to get us to discuss gossip because I have been listening to this amazing podcast called Normal Gossip. Um, and so my recommendation is for this podcast, which often begins with the host and a guest talking about like how they grew up thinking about gossip and the messages they got about gossip and um, which very often um, is religious in nature and is super interesting to me. Um, but the podcast itself is hugely entertaining and funny. Um, and it has made me think a ton about like the function of gossip and all of that. Um, and I hope that we will be able to find somebody who can talk with us about the kind of halofic side of lashon hara Um, and also with, about this podcast. So if you know who the a good person would be to have that conversation, definitely um let us know. But uh regardless, listen to the podcast. It's great. Another podcast recommendation um, is Torah Talk, which is the Hadar Institute um, kids podcast about the Parsha. Um, They just finished um, all of the Parshio and Sefer Shmot, and we listened to it in my family. And I mean, I will say the kid that they have on the podcast is named Adira and my child is also named Adira, which was very exciting for my family. But the podcast itself is super well done. They're, they're short. They're like, 10, 15 minutes. So it's like a bite-sized podcast, but it really does a great job of talking about the Parsha in an accessible way for kids. Um, and I really love it. Oh, sorry. It's called Torah Time, not Torah Talk. Um, I, of course, listened to another podcast called Torah Talk. So <laughs> um, Torah Time. And um then the other thing that I wanted to recommend is not a podcast. It is a um, a piece in input magazine hold on let me pull it up because it has like a really long um, uh, title it is a, a very long essay about um, trope trainer which is a um, is an app that was um, used by many thousands <laughs> of um people to learn how to lane to read Torah at Shul and um, was created by uh, one guy and um, he died. His name was Thomas Buchler. And, um, and that basically meant that Trope Trainer no longer works because his, um, his computer is gone. So um, it's called His Software Saying the Words of God, then it went silent. Who was Thomas Buchler, the late creator of beloved Torah program Trope Trainer, and can anything be done to revive his life's work? Um, it's just like a beautiful meditation, both on this particular man and his love of Torah and how he built this like incredible tool that so many people from so many different walks of life have used. Um, but it also... Um, really examines, like, what does it mean to build something and put it on the internet? Like, what is the responsibility inherent in that? And what happens when it goes away, and people have um, begun to depend on it? Like, this really interesting, um, very important questions, I think, about what it means to live in the kind of world that we live in right now. Um, And uh, it's, it's a, It's a long read. I actually have not finished it yet, even though I've been reading it for like 20, I I read like 25 minutes worth of it. Um, So prepare yourself, but it's really good. And uh, I love to read something that really looks deep at both technology and Torah. So I recommend it. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to our show. Uh, And thanks to Jordan Daniel Mills, who's our new editor for editing our show. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. Um, you can also let us know what you'd like us to discuss on a future episode, or if you have a recommendation for somebody who could talk about halacha and Shon hara, let us know. Um, you can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page. Just look for Jewish Public Media or on our website, which is jpmedia.co. You just have to search, uh, choose Talking and Tool" from the menu there. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media, which is a really great way to support our show and make sure that we can bring you new episodes every month. All right. Thank you so much, Miriam, for joining us this
1: week.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: It was a pleasure. And thank you so much, Zahava. Thank you. And thanks, Miriam. This was a great conversation. And I think the last time you were on, you were subbing for me when I was out on parental leave. So thank you for that as well.
2: That's right. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here whenever, whenever I'm needed. So thanks for having me.
0: Miriam can be Zahava or Mimi. She has, she has many, many talents. <laughs> uh, just kidding. She is her own person. Neither is Zahava nor Mimi. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, this was lovely. I will see you next month.